For many of us, it is the most important commitment to take care of our loved ones. We need, we feed as the Beatles song goes, and we work hard to ensure that those close to us are thriving. Today, there are 53 million people taking care of their parents, neighbors, and friends. And there are 53 million stories. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is When I'm 64, the podcast for caregivers. I'm your host, Ken Stern. On today's show, innovation and caregiving. Because the, 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 there is a fragmented healthcare system and there's a fragmented elder care system in the United States, it is ripe for innovation. This is considered to be an $8.3 trillion market in the U.S., $22 trillion in the world. And caregiving alone, just the needs of caregiving is estimated to be over $309 billion. We'll hear from caregivers turned entrepreneurs and the leaders of the Future of Longevity Accelerator program a collaboration between Techstars and Pivotal Ventures, an investment and incubation company founded by Melinda Gates. Techstars is the, uh, the worldwide network that helps entrepreneurs succeed. They have a large network of investors that are connected to them, that have invested in other Techstars companies, and that, they, that are invited to this big sort of uh, culmination of the program called Demo Day. And Demo Day, every company goes out there, and we pitch. A lot of preparation went into these pitches. You have to balance your personal story and this compelling narrative with really making it clear that you understand this is a, a sound investment because you lean too far on one side or the other and you, you sort of miss the opportunity. If this doesn't work out, I would go find another company that's working on a similar problem and I would go try to help them. The problem is worth it. If it's not us, that's okay. But, you know, the mission is more important than the company. For 13 weeks, 10 early-stage startups worked around the clock to grow their companies, each targeting a unique problem in caregiving and longevity. But their story started long before the Accelerator program. Today, we meet founders of two of these companies, starting with Resilient Health. Hi, my name is Danish Nagda. I am a physician by training. I was an ear, nose, throat surgeon. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I started a company called Schoology when I was an undergrad, and I'm the founder and CEO of Resilient. What we're doing at Resilient Health is we're using technology to bring the world's best doctors to every neighborhood. And we're doing it by building neighborhood hubs where you can access physicians without having to sit in a waiting room, without having to wait months to get an appointment, because the doctor is actually remote. So they're digitally delivered to that location. And using our proprietary robotic telehealth technology, they can actually do what they would do in the office. They can examine you. When, when you think about what our robotics platform is, it's literally an embodiment of the doctor remotely, just the functional components of the doctor remotely. We have a camera that represents the doctor's eyes remotely microphones that represents the doctor's ears remotely and we have an arm that represents the doctor's arm remotely and it's on a mobile base so the base can move around just like the doctor could move around so literally you know we don't build medical devices we take off the shelf medical devices and connect them to the end just like a doctor picking up an otoscope and putting it in front of their eyes our system picks up an otoscope and puts it in front of their eyes 
the doctor is in complete control of the system remotely. Originally, what we started, the company was called Dynamic Surgical. Like many companies, I was solving the issues that I face in my own clinic. The main issue was I had a lot of patients that had sleep apnea and other comorbidities that made it hard for me to take them to the operating room. I wanted to be able to do the procedures I would do for them, but do them in the office. And so what we had built was a robotic endoscope that could be controlled with a digital interface. In reality, and this is me just being completely honest, my world began and ended along the four walls of my operating room and my clinic. And so in that world, the problems that I was seeing were more around clinical outcomes and how can we provide better care, you know, solving physician problems. Uh, obviously, my, my point of view has changed. In October of 2016, my dad had a heart attack, but it was followed by cardiogenic shock. Cardiogenic shock is usually fatal. Uh, I was able to administer CPR on my dad, get him to the hospital. He was in the hospital for about, you know, uh, two-thirds of a year. Uh, most of that time in the ICU, intubated, sedated, uh, so essentially in a medically induced coma. He then had this, this procedure called cardiac resynchronization therapy that saved him. He was a super responder, which was great. And, you know, he then went on to go to a skilled nursing facility, inpatient rehab, the normal sort of, he got so deconditioned, he hadn't moved in nearly two-thirds of a year. He was like literally sedated in a coma. So when you come out of that, it's not like the movies. You know, you can't just don't walk out of there and just like run out. It's, uh, you know, he had lost so much muscle, uh, somewhere around 20 to 30 pounds of muscle. I, I went from being a surgeon who was, you know, practicing the OR to spending 20 to 30 to 40 hours a week doing caregiving. I would literally be taking my dad, moving him in bed, changing him, you know, taking him to all his doctor's appointments and sitting in countless hours. I mean, last year, I spent nearly 5,000 minutes sitting in waiting just so that a doctor could see my dad for like 10, 15 minutes. That experience of sitting in waiting room after waiting room was already really causing a lot of stress at home. It was causing issues with my personal health. You know, I'm a surgeon, but I have arthritis, and so it's really scary. So whenever the stress response goes up, I had x-rays showing that my bones were eroding because of all the issues that were happening. You know, I, I, I was in the hospital for a little bit myself. I got that sick, and my work suffered. I know it did. My co-founder, Jeff, really had to take on more of the leadership role while I was going through all of this. And so all of these different aspects really took a big toll on me. And about two years before the pandemic, I was smack dab in the middle of my caregiving role. And we were building dynamic surgical. Things were going great. And one of our investors, uh, who's also a surgeon, said, hey, look, I'm not going to come down to St. Louis, but I want to check out the technology. Is there any way you can give me like remote access to the digital interface and I can move the scope myself, like from Florida. I said to him, I was like, man, that's gonna be, that's gonna be a lot of work. He's like, come on. Like, and he was making a pretty sizable investment. And so, you know, I talked to my team and they were like, okay, we'll let, the, let him VPN. And he did it and he started moving the screen. The scope was moving in St. Louis. And he was like, guys, like, I think this is the product. This is what's gonna change the world. Like I have autonomy a thousand miles away. I can move things in space a thousand miles away and it's as if I'm in the room. What's the difference? I said, you know, if you could allow one of the world's best doctors 
to be able to do everything we do in the office, but do it remotely? Couldn't you potentially change the way healthcare is delivered? Because I hated the way healthcare was delivered, even though I was part of healthcare for a long time. Could we build a health system that is caregiver friendly? That's really when it just kind of came together and we made the decision of going into robotic telehealth. At the point that we started considering Techstars, the one area that we were not as comfortable with was the enterprise sales experience, the operations of our clinics and our hubs. Uh, we really needed a lot of operational expertise. I think we just felt that we were making that transition from being a technology company to a technology-enabled services company, and we felt that they were going to add tremendous value, and they have. So our first partner is Reef Technology. They're able to convert these parking lots that are just sitting there into these really vibrant community hubs. And so we're going into a partnership with them where they are real estate partner. They build out the real estate. They build out our, our hubs based on our specs. And then we are actually partnering with them to actually deliver care to their communities. And so we're starting out in Miami in March and we're going to go nationwide in the next couple of years. So super exciting. Uh, our big news on demo day was that the, the partnership's happening. So it's a huge, huge uh, opportunity for us to grow. Brazilian Health has a bold solution for telehealth and access to care, but innovation isn't always about the latest tech. Here's the founder of MemoryWell. Hi, my name is Jay Newton-Small and I'm CEO and founder of MemoryWell. My background's mostly in journalism. I was four years as Bloomberg's White House correspondent and then I was 10 years at Time Magazine. In the years since I left Time in 2017 to start Memory Well, we've built what I would call like a single-sided curated marketplace. And so what we do is we work B2B, like business to business, with palliative and hospice care, with home care, senior care. We're piloting with our first insurers and hospital systems to basically replace large swaths of those biographical or social determinants of health questionnaires that nobody loves to fill out and even fewer people actually read with brief, professionally told stories. And we have a network of more than 800 writers now. And then we host those stories digitally and families can build on them, adding their loved ones' favorite photos, music, movies, readings. So whoever's sitting with them, whether it's a paid caregiver or a grandchild, they have a whole toolbox of things with which to engage that person. He was a, a great raconteur, my father, uh, and a, a very larger-than-life personality. He was diagnosed at the age of 58 with Alzheimer's. My mother cared for my father for the first 10 years after the diagnosis, but it grew increasingly difficult for her, and in the, especially in the last two years, he was getting more and more symptomatic. So they were in the process of moving up to Washington, D.C. from Naples, Florida, so that I could help care for him when my mother passed. Uh, so she died in 2011. I became my father's primary caregiver at that point, and then he died in 2016. I cared for him for a few months after my mother died. I pretty quickly realized I was going to have to move him into a community, that I couldn't care for him myself. But he did not go willingly, and that was really, really hard. Um, over time in that community, he developed some pretty bad behavioral issues, and you know they kicked him out of that community because I just couldn't handle him anymore. The, there was a place that I finally put him into called Copper Ridge. It doesn't really exist anymore, but I moved him up there. It was about 50 miles north of DC. That's where they asked me to fill out this, this really big questionnaire about his life. I understood that they needed it for 
these behavioral issues that he was having. They were trying to understand what was driving these behavioral issues. But I really found that questionnaire difficult to approach. I mean, you know, I was like a professional writer. I was at Time Magazine and, and even I could not answer some of those questions. I handed in that form blank and I said, look, you know, I think it's probably just easier for me and easier for you if you let me write down his story. And they were kind of like, okay, yeah, you're weird, but you're paying us, so sure. <laughs> um, and so, I, um, I wrote down his story, it was one page, and I really plastered the community with it because I wanted them to know him. You know, he really couldn't introduce himself that well anymore. He was starting to get aphasia at that point, and it really actually transformed his care. I mean, two of his caregivers were Ethiopian. They'd had no idea that dad had lived in Ethiopia for four years early on in his career with the United Nations. and. They became his champions. They would sit for hours and ask him what it was like to work with Emperor Haile Selassie and what the Empress was like. And Dad loved it because he remembered Africa so really well at that point from his early 20s, um, even if he didn't remember last week or last month or last year. And yeah, memory well grew from there. The attraction for us for Techstars' future of longevity was expertise of longevity and the longevity market and how we might connect with longevity healthcare providers and better develop our services for them and, and understand where we could fit in as an intervention and where we could help them provide better care. And so that was what really attracted us to this program. When we first started doing these stories, we had a lot of people who came to us and said, you know, you should collect your data. And we were like, we're never going to do that. Like, you know, that's like horrible. That's no, no, no. We're just never going to do that. And, but over time, you know, we started speaking to more and more healthcare professionals, and we finally, I think, came around to the idea that this, that we were collecting very significant, very interesting data sets that could have a very big impact on, on health, healthcare outcomes. I mean, I view it really as just translating the story into a language that computers can understand. It's the same information in the story, it's just that the computers can now understand it, but then once the computers can understand it, there's like this whole universe of social determinants of health that I think so many healthcare providers have no idea how to approach and what are the root causes of them and how to address them. And what we can do is, is clearly understand that, we can inform that. Like I said, I view the data aspect of it as just taking that same information and translating it for a computer and making that information actionable. But it's still about your biography. It's still about who you are and your you as a person versus you as a diagnosis. We are fundraising right now, so we're raising a $2 million seed round, and part of what we're raising this round for is to hire a lot more on the tech side. So really bu building out those databases, building out the, the data side of things is um, our priority this year. We're also, uh, I've got some really exciting pilots with Prospero Health, which is an in-home palliative care spinoff of Optum that we are super jazzed about. and. Uh, also, PCH Mutual, which is a national insurer of 2,200 senior living communities across the country. So the, our next big focus will be those two big pilots, which will be about three, total about 300 stories between the two of them, and potentially scaling into tens of thousands of stories down the road. I consider what we do putting the heart into the Tin Man of Care. And so whether you're somebody like my father who can't really introduce himself anymore because of a diagnosis or whether you're you know, a minority who doesn't necessarily trust that you're a doctor, that they have their best interests at heart, 
we want to be able to just better connect people, better build that empathy and create a healthcare system that has a heart and a soul and one that um, patients and doctors know each other as human beings and not just diagnoses and clinical outcomes. We just heard from Donish Nagda and Jay Newton-Small, who decided to solve some of the problems they were facing as caregivers by starting two very different companies. Jason Towns, you're the managing director of the Techstars Future of Longevity Accelerator, and Susan Golden, you're the director of DCIX at the Stanford Distinguished Careers Institute, and a mentor to MemoryWell as part of the Accelerator program. Susan, help us understand why the focus on innovation in caregiving. Why is this an issue that you've involved yourself in and that Pivotal Ventures and others have involved themselves in as well? So every person and every family will be a caregiver at some point in their lives or receive care at some point in their lives. I was a caregiver at many different points in my life. Um, I was either being a daughter or a parent. And I think most people in America are experiencing that. And nearly one in five people right now are providing unpaid care to an adult with health or functional needs. And there's now 53 million unpaid caregivers in the United States, two thirds of which are women. COVID now has exacerbated this and we're having now for the first time a national conversation about caregiving, which has been much needed. And um, as Melinda Gates recently wrote, this has been a pre-existing condition. This wasn't brought on by COVID, it's been around, but we do not have an integrated caregiving system. and there are solutions. And the beauty of what uh, the accelerator is doing is caregiving can be joyful and, and caregivers can be um, have purpose and meaning in their world, but innovations are gonna be needed to help them because there are so many different dimensions of caregiving. People talk about the caregiving crisis. They're often looking for solutions, first from government, Secondly, from business, what made you and your colleagues start thinking about caregiving and innovation, entrepreneurship as a solution to it? And, and what parts of the challenge do you think are particularly open to entrepreneurial solutions? So because the, 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 there is a fragmented healthcare system and there's a fragmented elder care system in the United States, it is ripe for innovation. And there are other aspects of, of, of our life that have been disrupted. But the caregiving, which impacts everybody, has not been disrupted till now. And just in the last five years, there's been a recognition that with longer lifespans, there's going to be a need for all sorts of innovation. This is considered to be an $8.3 trillion market in the U.S., $22 trillion in the world. And caregiving alone, just the needs of caregiving is estimated to be over $309 billion. So I first came to understand this better when I came to the Distinguished Careers Institute at Stanford. My eyes opened up and I started talking to um, my venture capital colleagues that I said, why aren't you investing in this? And most people just didn't have this on their radar. And so as I began to see that there's this longer lifespan, most people uh, born today can expect to live it well into their hundreds. There's a way to prevent some of the declining needs um, as you get older. And yet there's a need to, for when you are gonna need caregiving to aid that through innovation. And I'm a great believer in innovation and entrepreneurship. I thought this was you know, just a ripe opportunity. Right, so, so I'm curious, Jason, this wasn't just any 13 weeks in caregiving. 
COVID was going on, it was turning everything upside down. Did this actually help get investors interested in the topic? Yes. So there have been a very strong cohort of investors that have been operating in this space for, for some time. And I think it's been, it's been growing and that's a, I think that's a, a beautiful thing. This year and, and this, this pandemic really has helped others start to see two things. One, just the, the reality of the opportunity. So to be a, an early stage investor and knowing that to Susan's point, all of us will be caregivers at some point in time in, in our lives. And so to be in a position to play a role in, in doing something uh, tangible to, uh, to address this crisis, I think that has really landed on, uh, on, a, on a lot of, of people, not just investors, but across the innovation ecosystem I also think that it's becoming very clear that, and uh, again, Susan mentioned some of the some of the numbers. This is a very, very real, huge market to solve, uh, uh, to solve and to innovate for. And so, I think that that piece is starting to become more clear to many more early stage investors across the board. So, as that's happening, more are coming into the fold. More are looking at caregiving longevity as a as an extension to their investment thesis and because of that i think that we're going to see an acceleration in the way that uh that innovation is going to be supported in this space and we need that more than ever and this year if if this year hasn't proven anything it's that we've got to do a better job of supporting those who are who are brave enough to uh to solve for some of these challenges so I've just been proud and, and humbled, honestly, to be uh, in a position to A, support these 10 companies, but B, to, to, to work to cultivate a community of, of those who really feel passionately about, about supporting uh, these, these challenges. So Jason, that sounds really promising. Susan, from your perspective, what's Pivotal Ventures and your vision for what this innovation ecosystem looks like for caregiving three, four, five years down the road? Well, I think what Pivotal's done is bring attention to this as a need, as a national ecosystem that needs to be addressed, but also that they're going to bring uh, resources to it. So I think what's going to happen is one of the things I'm involved in is doing a landscape review of, of innovation space and caregiving for them to spotlight what's going right and, what, and why so that other innovators can learn from that. And then where are the gaps? Where are the innovation gaps? And so example being... Um, elder fraud has only been growing this past year, so there's going to be a real need for more fintech school, uh, tools and solutions, um, more in the in the telehealth space so, because it's here to stay. So how can it be uh, curated to help the older adult? We're going to be spotlighting what needs to be done uh, with some recommendations. And then the investor community, I think what Pivotal has been able to do is bring more attention to this space, to the investment community. There aren't that many investors yet in this space and we need more of it. And we also need more older entrepreneurs working with younger entrepreneurs. I'd really love to see the new round that come through the accelerator have intergenerational teams. And we're gonna keep assessing what's working, what's, what's going right in the caregiving innovation community and what's not. And the, the biggest pain point is always the customer acquisition process. And I have this vision of, um, um, working with Pivotal about thinking about sort of a universal platform. How could we, how could every older adult know where to go or every a caregiver for an older adult know where to go to get 
access to these innovations, access to information. Right now, it's, a, it's in many different places. There is a lot of great stuff happening out there, but most people just don't know about it. So how can we be a source of integration and elevate this so that we have sort of a sort of a national directory of where to go when you need help? So Jason, what's next for you? Is there another round of the Techstars Future of Longevity Accelerator? When, when would that start? February, we actually begin the sourcing process for the next for the next class. And so we're back at it, you know, sourcing, talking to more companies and and really again casting that wide net to make sure that we're we're building out uh you know building out the pipeline that uh that we believe represents the future of the space it's been a heck of a journey but uh i'm really excited about where things are now and excited about the next chapter to learn more about the future of longevity accelerator and see all 10 companies demo day pitches visit demoday.techstars.com forward slash longevity dash 2020 dash T5, or just go to Techstars and hunt around for it. Special thanks to our panelists, Sarah Hippert, Techstars at Pivotal Ventures, Resilient Health, MemoryWell, NeighborForce, and Connect Care Hero. Our senior producer for When I'm 64 is Kerry Thompson, and our associate producer is Ava Ahmadbegi. Thank you for joining us for this episode of When I'm 64, the podcast for caregivers. And we'll be back in three weeks with a new episode on military caregivers and the special challenges of caring for the visible and invisible wounds of war. I'm Ken Stern. Thanks for listening.